Pagan orgies and witch cults. Last fall, I invited some paranormal investigators to visit a class I teach with a friend of mine about the history of ghosts in American culture. Somehow we got on the subject of poltergeists, and one of the investigators suggested a theory I'd somehow never come across before, despite all the time I spend around ghosts and ghost aficionados. He said that poltergeists, supernatural beings that are generally blamed for moving things around your house sometimes in a violent or aggressive way, often weren't actually supernatural beings, ghosts of the dead. Frequently, these phenomena happened in homes where adolescent girls lived and were in some stage of puberty, and the floating knives and slamming cupboards were actually a manifestation of their overabundance of psychic energy at that period in their lives. Really? Hm. Really? Period. Are we doing that now? That's what we're doing? Well, we did it just the one time. Just the one? Is there any more period jokes in this episode, Rob? Let's hope so. This sent my head spinning in all kinds of directions. The teenage witches of Salem that sparked one of our strangest American tragedies. The Fox sisters with their paranormal spirits who started tapping when the girls were 11 and 13 years old. The victims of possession in Loudon and Mortsine. And at the center of 1970s horror movies, like... Carrie. Carrie, for example, right. Some Stephen King action. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Exorcist, right? All of these are teenage girls. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Sabrina the... Yes, Sabrina. (laughs) Buffy. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. All girls, all teenagers, all overwhelmed by paranormal phenomena of one kind or another. Vampires. Ghosts. You name it. Talking cats. Mm. So if we think of all these examples together, here's the theory. At the moment when a girl becomes sexually mature, her mind and body open up to forces beyond those we've recognized in our physical world. And these forces manifest in all kinds of ways, including telekinesis, spirit wrapping, and demonic possession. What is spirit wrapping? So that's um, when ghosts tap messages to you through your walls. Oh, okay, like wrapping like wrapping on a door. Yeah, not like a present. Yeah, okay. Oh, I was thinking like... I was very confused. I'm a ghost and I'm... Here to, no, I'm I gonna knew stop. it wasn't that. I knew it wasn't. <laughs> you were gonna lay down some sick rhymes. There. I was. I wish I could, but like you know, like old school. Like I want to. Where's Ryan? Like dead school. <laughs> In order for this to be true, there has got to be something uniquely paranormal about the female sex, specifically as it relates to sexuality or sexual maturity. This is what's flooding in on the pubescent girl. Hormones, physical changes, a blossoming into sexual being. The question for us is. Do women have special magical powers? And what does that have to do with their sexual maturity? It's true that not all girls turn into Carrie after they have their first menstrual cycle. They definitely do. But after looking back through history, it's also true that some have, as I believe Olivia is pointing out. They have. We all have. The idea had to come to Stephen King from somewhere, after all. And Carrie reminds us that there's another dimension to this. In every one of these cases, the girl's supernatural power is subversive, upsetting social norms and generally turning things upside down and backwards. For poltergeists, this is happening mainly among the family unit. But broader social disruptions come from the Fox sisters, who break the boundary between life and death, and victims of possession, who literally break social codes by scaling buildings and cursing, dancing around naked. Forbidden words. Sounds like my daily life. Etc. Brianna does do that on the daily. I do. Joan of Arc is another great example. A teenage girl inspired by angels, leading the French assault against the English. Everything about that 
is on the other side of what is socially acceptable in 15th century Europe and just screams out a kind of rebellion. Supernaturalism opens the door for women to smash through their social roles and disrupt society. So that's another theme we'll have to make sense of. How do these supernatural influences allow women to break free? This is going to be another long, strange journey. The intersections of women, sex, and the paranormal stretch back at least as far as ancient paganism and cultural attitudes toward women and their sexuality are incredibly complicated, to say the least, and often contradictory. Today we're going to draw on the connection between the Greeks, the Romans, the Curse of Eve, and medieval European witch cults. Then, after this episode, we're going to continue on to consider America's early occultists, uh, the tale of the incredible radical free lover Victoria Woodhull, the voodooist Marie Laveau in New Orleans, the neo-pagans and the Wiccans, and finally come back around to poltergeists. Before we get started on our second volume, uh, we'd like to thank everybody who has helped us keep this podcast on the digital airwaves so far. Between the research, writing, recording, and editing, it takes about 40 hours to create an episode of Occult Confessions, so any contribution you can make to help keep us digging into the secrets of the occult go a long way to keeping us on the job. Yes. I know the last series uh, really required our audience to follow along and listen to the episodes in order, but we're trying something new this round. While we might have a paired episode or two, for the most part you'll be able to listen to the Lady Magic series in any order you like. All the same, we hope you'll be anxiously anticipating the episodes each week as much as we anxiously anticipate sharing them with you. Yes, we Yeah, we I was just going to say, definitely try to listen to all the episodes because they all interlink in different ways, even though you can listen to them on their own. So get, learn more information about all of it if you listen to all of them. Chart your own podcast journey. Uh, so if you'd like to m- learn uh, more about anything we discuss, we haven't we don't mention this enough in our episodes. Um, we've we've got your start down the rabbit hole at our website occultconfessions.com. We actually list a lot of the references, the books and sources that we use to put these episodes together. Uh, so you can get updates on Twitter and Facebook as well. Yep. Uh, and one more note: I know we're very popular with listeners under twelve, but for this series, we're suggesting that you be. At least 13 to tune in. Yeah. Yeah. Be safe. Uh, It's all in good taste, but our younger listeners will just have far too many questions about, you know. And we won't answer those questions. Menstruation. It's not our job. Not at all. Only your parents will answer those questions. So if you happen to be 13 or older, sit right down. We have got some stuff to tell you. Like we're giving them the sex talk. <laughs> we kind of are. That's right? after hours. Yeah, Rob and Olivia give a sex talk to the underage viewers. You know, the, the sex talk is very similar to the who were the Greeks talk. Ah, so you many know? talks that we're going to have to have. Yeah. All right, now that we've got our housekeeping out of the way, let's get down to it. My name is Rob Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors. Sitting with me here is Olivia Litterall. Hey, guys. Our grandmaster, and it's she me. has brought her sister for the very first time joining us in our podcast, Brianna. Hey. Hey. You want to say more than that? What do you want me to say? <laughs> All right. Sisterly love. I know. Yes. We love each other so much. Hmm. That's what we wanted to hear. <laughs> and uh, we're welcoming back James Kaplangis. Hello, folks. Welcome. Little folks. There are little folks in there. I like to be inclusive. I yeah, like it. folks is a gender inclusive term. Welcoming our Midwestern audience. <laughs> Let's get started. We, we the, the members of the secret order, order of alchemical actors, do, do solemnly submit ourselves to a full. 
full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Welcome back, guys. Yeah, that's two weeks off, and that's what that sounds like. I'm sorry, Grandmaster. <laughs> you are forgiven, my child. <laughs> Western religion has had a funky relationship with female believers from the start. I know that's right. Mm -hmm. On the whole, Christianity has been reluctant to give women a place of authority, even up to the present day. The reasons for this are buried in our ancient pagan and medieval Christian past, and they pull out some of the major themes that drew together women and occultism during the witch crazes of the 16th and 17th century. So, that sets our goal for today, to make sense of how Westerners have felt traditionally about women and supernatural power. The whole story culminates with those witch trials, so we can think about today's episode as a history of witchcraft. This is very exciting, Rob. So let's start back where most histories of Western culture begin. Ancient Greece. Ooh. Home of James's ancestors. And feta cheese. This doesn't mean that there aren't examples of women having supernatural abilities before ancient Greece, but Greece is where many of our major cultural influences get started, like democracy and theater. Also, Greece has a nice record of their history, practices, and beliefs, which we can't say about many earlier cultures before the Greeks. So, Greece was a mixed bag as far as women's general freedom. In Athens, women were limited in the amount they could trade. They could not own property outside of their clothing, jewelry, and slaves, and they had to be under the protection of a curios. How does that sound to you, James? A curios. A curios. The emphasis on, on the os. Yes. Or guardian, who emphasis on the the, the guard. Gu oh, <laughs> guardian, whose responsibility it was to provide a dowry. This was probably a product of Athenians' famous democracy. Only landholding men could vote, and this tended to marginalize any people that didn't fall inside that category. Now Sparta. On the other hand. Different story. Different <laughs> story. Notorious for the freedom they gave their women. Spartan women delayed marriage and childbirth until their late teens or early 20s. They competed in sports. Possibly nude. How salacious. Well, the weather's very nice there. They did um, the Olympics. They were mostly Yeah, well, I mean, everybody yeah. did They were the oiled down with right. olive Pretty oil. Early, yeah. And uh, <laughs> they probably competed alongside young men. So everyone's naked. Sounds like a fun time. Right. Yeah. So uh, they could read. They could do math. Uh, and the fact that Spartan men were frequently going off to die in war required the women to take a bigger part in the control of Spartan society. So this is really all about the fact that Sparta is primarily interested in their military power, as opposed to the Athenians who had sort of more mixed interests. Like a better version of World War One. And the premium <laughs> Spartans placed on healthy children... Was another point in women's favor there. Don't look at me like that. I think so, every version of World War One's better than World War One. No, I'm uh, saying like how in America women took the over. The yes we can yeah. poster. I, I was making I a yeah. comparison. Or yeah. we can do it, sorry. We can do it. Yeah. Yes we can yes, was Obama. <laughs> uh, so actually, just fun fact while we're on a tangent here. In Sparta, if you had a wife who was still of childbearing age, but you were too old to inseminate her, you would share her with another man. That makes sense. Like you would loan her? You would loan her out, yeah. Do, you, do they get paid? Well, the, because they were so interested in producing healthy children. That's what it was all about. So, you know, f you know, f 
fuel the military industrial complex. That. Wait, so is she producing is she producing children for her husband or the other husband? Who gets the kid? I don't I actually Who gets the child? My research is not indicated who gets the child. But I, I would guess the father gets to keep the kid. Yeah. But it doesn't it hardly matters because the father's probably going to die on the battlefield in like 6 months anyway. Well, so the other guy isn't like, "Hey, that's my kid." No. Well, it's not that kind no. of culture i think it's more of a communal kind of yeah. raising yeah of that's amazing I think james is on I, the right have, track here so the greeks allowed women to occupy roles of religious power as oracles that's the specific supernatural place that women occupy the oracles at delphi were female although there were also male priests who served apollo as well in different capacities it's difficult to say why the female oracle had to be Lady Magic. It might have been uh, the union she was meant to achieve with the male sun god Apollo. Requires a little oh. vag, a little peen, in order to receive her messages. To stay e? Is that our thirteen? Thirteen. You can PG say 13. peen and vag. You it's can not say the whole peen, word. not is. It's not the whole word. Sorry. The messages that the oracle received were an answer to queries put by the Athenians and were often in poetic form. They could be a simple yes or no, they could be a choice between two options placed in an urn, or they could be poetic and vague, shifting the terms of an argument to the meaning of the oracle rather than the problem itself. Hail Oracle! We would like to inquire whether we should invade Sparta. My companion is most anxious to gaze upon their nude exercises. Oh, yes. The oracle must enter her trance. The sun is to a bull's anus as the moon is to a duck's gonads. So, as far as the war, is that a yes or a no? So, the sun warms the anus, right? Does the moon... Pull the gonads? The oracle has spoken. The Delphic oracle delivered her messages from Apollo by going into trance. Another group of priestesses achieved a similar kind of contact with the god by popping out of their heads in frenzy. These were the Maenads, also known as the Bacchants, priestesses of Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine and revelry, but also fertility and theater. He was the god who had been born again. His mother Semele was incinerated when she asked to gaze upon Zeus in his full godhead. Semele had been Zeus's lover and was pregnant with his child. He took the child up and put the child in his thigh. And Dionysus, that child, was born again. Now a full god. I wish that would happen to me. Which part? All of it. Being... Sewing a child in your thigh? No, I wouldn't be being incinerated by. God. So you want to be the child sewn into the thigh? Yes. You want? Yeah. So currently, you would like us to sew you into a thigh? Is that how you raise me to godliness? I don't I think just... it would work in this day and age. I don't know if we're gonna find a thigh that would fit you. Yours. What are you trying to say about me, Rob? What are you trying to say about my thigh? Hmm. <laughs> we get a lot of what we know about the Bacchants from a play by Euripides, the last of Greece's three great dramatists. Theater history scholars will know, my theater students, those first two dramatists yeah. are... Wait, I wasn't listening. Aeschylus, yet. yes. Excellent. Aeschylus yes, and, and uh, Sophocles. Very nice. James wins the gold star. Euripides tells the mythological story of Pentheus, grandson of Cadmus and king of Thebes, who refused to honor Dionysus as a god. In his defense, Dionysus was 
Pantheus' cousin, since Semele had been the mortal daughter of Cadmus himself. Is anybody here willing to honor any of their cousins as gods? Absolutely not. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a no for me. I'm Greek, so all my cousins have the same name as me and my siblings. Right. I'm surprised that's not in the Greek in the Greek stories more. That they would confuse each other because they're all... You probably had to give them names because they all had the same yeah. names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Dionysus' uh, followers, the Maenads, uh, descended on his kingdom, and the women of Thebes took to the forests to revel with them, including Pentheus' own mother and his aunts. The revelers were all women and Pentheus wanted to get a look at what they were up to, so he went out to the forest to spy on them. While he was there, Dionysus enchanted his mother so that she believed Pentheus was a lion, and she and her sisters grabbed him and tore him apart. Just to give you a sense of how fierce the Maenads were. Then his mother Agave brought his head, her own son, as a trophy back to her father Cadmus, believing the whole time that it was a lion she had killed. So let's go ahead and listen in. James, since you got that Sophocles question right, I'd like you to go ahead and play Cadmus for us. Oh, thanks, Rob. The beast is young. See how the down blooms upon its cheek like newborn silk under the rich, soft mane. Oh, father, you see what I carry in my arms? It is a prize I have won, yours to hang upon your walls. Receive it, father, in your hands. Rejoice in my conquest and summon all your friends to join in our royal feast. Oh, daughter, daughter, if ever you come out of this and know what you have done, you'll suffer terrible pain. And if your mind remains forever drugged against reality, your happiness, being all delusion, is but the greatest misery. Why all this talk of misery? In your husband's house, you bore a son. Who was he? Pentheus, Echion's son and mine. And whose face is that you're holding in your hand? A lion, so the hunting woman say. Look again! Look straight at it and go on looking till you know what it is. I see! Oh, God! Does it seem like a lion now? No! It is Pentheus! His head is in my hands! <laughs> Grim. But there's a couple of important points to be made here about the actual historical Dionysian worship, which is vaguely reflected by Euripides. Mm. First, this whole tearing apart business was actually an important aspect of it. Not not murdering people, per se. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but sure? I'm pretty sure. But drinking lots of wine, dancing, oh, okay. taking yep. your clothes off. Oh, hell yeah. And tearing bulls. Bulls. Limb from limb. That sounds pretty I'm going to rain check that day, but really? I'm down for everything else. With your bare hands. My bare hands are... Yeah, are are these the kind of bulls we think about here in the U.S.? With well, the... not the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> no, not the basketball team. <laughs> I was really Can excited. Can I quit after this? Like, how big are these bulls? Are they just like young male bull calves? Bull size. I think they're bull size. Sounds Jeez. like a fun Bull time. size? Yeah. That was your response to how well, big I, are the bulls? Like in relation to non-bulls, they are what? the size of what, bulls. What do you what define else? as a non-bull? A cow. An uttered cow. An otter. But I, <laughs> anything could be a non-bull. <laughs> Which would be smaller than... Except for a bull. A bull. What about a dinosaur? This is the other point. 
the act of worshiping Dionysus drove people out of their heads into an altered state of consciousness, which endowed the revelers with superhuman strength, allowing them to tear these much larger creatures into pieces. It's really not as strange as we think when you compare it to reports of what people can do on bath salts or PCP, right? Mm. PCP or angel dust, as we learned at the police station. Or in the D.A.R.E. program. <laughs> when you in were... the D.A.R.E. program, yes. Let's so... clarify, I'm talking about the D.A.R.E. program, not when I was incarcerated. But you... Oh, that was, that was different. But use. they took you to the police station and didn't bring it to you. That's correct. I was brought to the police station along with all of the fifth graders, and we learned fifth about grade? PCP. They or angel dust. Like, I don't think it's, it's I don't think fifth graders now have this issue. No. I think it's a fad, right? Yeah, we had a big PCP problem growing up In among fifth, grade. fifth graders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for the Greeks, there was a clear line between women, supernatural power, and altered states of consciousness. And in the case of the Maenads, there was even some subversion. Running around having naked orgies in the woods, drinking, dismembering livestock. Not exactly ladylike behavior. Not by today's hmm, standards. I think no, no, no. In Rome, making a shift now, there was also a place for women's religious authority, but less so for the frenzies and the trances. The grade school version of Roman religion is that it's just the Greek gods with all the names changed. The imperial Romans were a lot like ancient Americans. They had a melting pot. As they conquered other cultures, they assimilated their gods. So whereas the Greeks had about 12 major gods, the Romans had hundreds. Their system of consulting the gods was also a lot more controlled. They adopted the oracles just like they swallowed up Greek culture, but the original Roman practice of consulting the gods was through augury. Augurs involved reading the codes the gods wrote into nature. Before you went to war or built a temple or named yourself a Caesar, you, not a salad, but a person to be in charge of you, you might consult the augurs, and they would consult the signs. If there were 12 crows in a tree, and a storm was brewing, that might mean war was a good idea. But temple building, maybe not such a good idea on that particular day. The augurs were established by the legendary second ruler of Rome, Numa Pompilius. He also put in place the first Vestal Virgins. Girls between the ages of 6 and 10 were chosen by the head of the priest, or Pontifex Maximus, to serve for a period of 30 years. It's a long time commitment. The priestess spent 10 years learning her duties, 10 years performing them, and 10 years teaching them to the next priestesses. Then, after she retired, she could be married, and they often were, because marrying a Vestal Virgin came with a nice salary. Mm. But they, they can't, at that time, you're past your... Your years for... Your childbearing yes. years, yeah. But you could still have sexy times. No. Of course. Yeah. Well, because they chose you because most of the time they chose the women because they thought that they would have problems in childbirth. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's one of the reasons they started, like, or not started, but they used palm reading to determine the women that they thought would have problems. Fun the, fact. <laughs> the Vestals, um, their job, their primary job after this palm reading affair... Uh, was to maintain the sacred fire of Hesta, goddess of the hearth. This is essentially the state hearth of Rome. So there was a domesticity to their role, you know, the hearth being the center of the home, um, even though it was a significant state function. If the fire went out, the virgin who was uh, in charge that day would be stripped and flogged by the Pontifex Maximus in a special veiled space. So, you know, maintaining their purity... Their virginity. It's a little kinky. The flogging, or the naked flogging, yeah. You can't tell me he didn't enjoy that. Little Fifty Shades of Maximus. (laughs) 
If they defiled their virginity, that is to say, if the Roman woman uh, gave it up, they were buried alive, often in an underground tomb. How'd they know? Did they check every now and then? or? It, see, that's the thing. It was very possible for the virgins to serve as scapegoats for when the empire was going on, under. It just a, sounds like another witch hunt. Bad, yeah. like if they were having a bad time. We could be like, oh, one of the Vestal virgins totally has been, you know, unvirgining, yeah, devirgining, deflowering herself, and that's why Rome's having a bad time. And there's all these pestilences and Visigoths. It's rough. So um, let's get over there and punish punish us a virgin. Otherwise, it was a pretty good gig, though. Uh, they got special seats at the Colosseum. They Ooh, were invited yes. to perform at major public ceremonies. They kept the wills of major state figures. Oh, that's, that's kind of nice. fun, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they performed at large public weddings. Like, hmm. you know, royal weddings and things. What did they do? Yeah, perform oh, they like they poetry. Music, and music? they sung and stuff, right? right well, so, ceremonial functions as well, yeah. To, yeah. Because, oh. you know, okay. this is a conjugal event, right? And mm-hmm. the formation of new hearths, new families. Uh, so, being servants of the goddess, they were socially independent. They were emancipated from the paternal control of their families. They didn't have to pass from father to husband. And the Vestals had supernatural power in that their personal individual purity and proper maintenance of their purity and of the flame correlated to the good or bad fortune of the state. After the empire became Christian following the conversion of Constantine, they eventually got around to disbanding the Vestal Virgins and putting out the sacred flame. And fun fact, some actually blamed the subsequent fall of the empire for this betrayal of Rome's ancient gods, that the extinguishing of the flame and the disbanding of the virgins actually led to the decline of Rome. It's not good for Christianity. So, uh, what do you think? Were, do you think the Vestals were liberated or confined by their so-called supernatural ability? I would still say liberated. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, uh, it's sort of interesting. For the Greeks, there's this sort of, women have this secret power that they go off to the woods and express in these bull-sacrificing ceremonies. Mm-hmm. For the Romans... Women continue to have, I think, this sort of potentially dangerous power. But the Roman response, instead of sort of like letting them run off and have orgies in the woods, is to create these highly controlled roles where that supernatural feminine power can be channeled. But it still exists. The Greeks were much more afraid of the women. They said, you you go do your thing over there. We will uh, just stay over here and vote amongst ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you mean because they weren't allowed to vote in athens yeah i think socrates said if we if women were allowed to vote they would have too much power Mm, that's right as we begin to round around to the christians they're going to take a very different approach from both the romans and the greeks a couple of big caveats before we talk about christianity for all our christians out there first the religions and the teachings of jesus of nazareth are not necessarily the same the man said one thing The religions that followed are a different thing. Jesus had prominent women among his disciples, and he stood up for prostitutes. For example, it's hard to imagine some, uh, I don't know, evangelicals, for example, following a similar path. Uh, The religion that developed after his lifetime didn't always follow his example as closely as it should have. And second, there really isn't one big monolithic Christianity. Like any religion, it's splintered into many, many pieces throughout its history, and all of them have taken varying approaches 
to the woman question. My favorite question. The woman question. But that doesn't mean there hasn't been a dominant voice, at least on the European side of things, for much of Western history. Up until the Protestant Reformation, which is Olivia's favorite Reformation. It really is. Uh, which, you know, takes place in the 15 and 1600s, that dominant voice belongs to what we now call the Catholic Church based in Rome, but to be fair, it was simply Western Christian Church, with the Greeks accepted, James. From the Dark Ages through the medieval period, the Church's view of women was refracted through widespread belief in the curse of Eve. The original sin. Dun, dun, dun. Although, really, if you look at it, she wasn't the first one to sin. Which brings us to today's brief history. <laughs> A brief history of the Garden of Eden. So God made the universe in seven days, and in the universe he put the earth, and on the earth he put a garden, and in the garden he put two people, that male Adam and the female Eve. And they hung around all day naming stuff and eating the peaches of immortality. Right, that's, you know, yeah, I don't know if they were peaches or we just, apples. We did or that, like, last weekend. Grapes. Didn't we? You two. We, we named we, things? Yeah, and we just walked around. That's a chair. Yeah, but we were wearing pants. Go we on. had peaches. We did have peaches. Rainbow Trout! Armadillo! Uh, how's that peach cobbler coming, honey? Yellow-bellied sapsucker. Diamondback turtle? Slug. Slug. So they hung around naked, and they had no idea, because they didn't eat from the tree that let them know what clothes were. But that was the one tree they weren't supposed to eat from. They could pretty much do anything at all. Bungee jumping, skeet shooting, the Karma Sutra. Yeah. <laughs> anything but eat from that tree. Anything but that. But the Karma Sutra's not. Karma Sutra's cool. Great. Yeah. Love God. So right. one day the snake says to the woman, how about you eat from that tree? And she's like, okay. Hey, hey you. Hmm? Me? me? Yes, you. Oh, uh, what? You want a bite of this apple? Uh, okay. Ah! Ah! I'm naked! Hey! You're naked. Nice. nice. And it was no more peaches for them from then on out. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Ew. <laughs> um, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it! Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And that's a brief history of the Garden of Eden. So a whole lot of early Christian gender theory comes out of this moment. Look closely at what's happening with Eve. She's the one who is tempted to break the rules, not the man. So this translates to the idea that women are more susceptible to Satan's temptation to sin. And she's cursed to hate childbirth but loves sex Ooh. with Adam. <laughs> so that translates to the idea that women are more sensual than men. We think today about men, you know, thinking with their testicles. But historically, the view was that women were doing all of their thinking with their, not testicles, their ovaries, uh, hoot ovaries. their hootenannies. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes. How else could we explain why women would want to have sex with men? True. That is a really <laughs> How good else point. would we wow. explain that? Even though it resulted in pregnancy. It's really just the pregnancy that... Oh. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, I think we have a lot to offer, don't that, you, James? I think men are beautiful. Favorite. Yeah, we have... Uh, do you know, uh, Michelangelo thought so. 
Well, FYI. He definitely loved men. Yeah, he did. If, like me, uh, you've taken a childbirth class recently, you'll hear that Christians distorted an earlier pagan view of pregnancy, which saw it as something generally positive and even enjoyable for a woman. Sex is less incomprehensible, less sinful, and more fun under a pagan mindset. Right? Yeah, it is. Older Spartans even shared their wives with younger men, as we talked about. It was a different time. But for Christians, the view that women were more sensual and more easily tempted opened the door to the next major incarnation of female supernatural power, witchcraft. While belief in witchcraft has its roots in the early church, the chickens didn't come home to roost until the early days of the Renaissance with the rise of the Protestant Reformation. So let's just set the scene. For almost a thousand years, all of Christendom uh, west of Greece has had one church. East of Greece, they've also had one church, but it's a little bit different. Anyhow, along comes Henry VIII and Martin Luther, and they've got these ideas that begin to break up the church. Martin Luther's got his 95 theses, and Henry VIII splits with the Pope in Rome. So Henry VIII is generally remembered as a horn dog. Yeah. Who wanted some strange. A lot of historians think that Henry VIII was truly terrified that his marriage with Catherine was like a curse. Yeah, I mean, we have to bear in mind the man commissioned the English Bible. Yeah, and he came out with the statement on the, uh, the seven sacraments against Martin Luther. And he broke up the monasteries to take all their stuff. Yeah. Fun. But it also democratized the church, right? So it's, it's sort of like if someone started a completely different American government in Milwaukee with a whole new set of laws that you could join, but that also had repercussions for whether or not your soul would be subjected to everlasting torment. Sounds like Mormonism. Yeah, that's basically what we're looking at. We have one church and another church now. Suddenly there's two churches. We've never had two churches before, and we're panicked about which one's right, because if we pick the wrong one, we're all going to hell. And the Pope is pissed. <laughs> Yeah, so there's these super big shakeups. Um, people think the world is coming to an end, uh, and it's all sort of around religious issues. We had the same problem with Y2K. James, do you remember Y2K? The year 2000? Yes. What were we worried about in the year Y2K? That the world was going to end. Why? I was nine. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought that the computers were going to bring us down. Ah, uh, robots. Right. In 1999, right, D December 31st, 1999, we were going to flip over, and the computers hadn't been programmed, so we heard, in this Y2K deal, to register the year 2000. So all of the computers across the globe would just crash. This was nonsense and didn't, it didn't happen, right? Here we are. We didn't have a giant technological crash. But think about the rapid change that was taking place in the 90s. It was all based in technology and computers, yes. right? So this is the same situation 500 years earlier. The rapid changes that are taking place are all in theology and religion. So the end of the world is going to be interpreted in religious terms, just like we interpreted the end of the world in the year 2000 through technological terms. That's why the Great Peasant War happened, which was the bloodiest like European-like revolution before the French Revolution. But they thought it was because it was like the year was in Pisces, and they thought it was the end of the world. Because fish. The Revelation of St. John also known as the last chapter of the Bible, gives the impression that with the fullness of time or the coming to the end of time comes the fullness of evil. There's an antichrist and dragons and whores coming out of the sea. It's a whole mess. So then excited. Jesus de descends and cleans things up, establishes heaven on earth all as well. So, panicked about religion, 
uh, believing in an apocalypse and that that apocalypse is coming any second, right? Because the church is breaking apart, mass hysteria. People start looking around for manifestations of this fullness of evil. And they primarily find this in women who come to be called witches. In 1487, this guy Heinrich Kramer and possibly also this other guy, Jacob Sprenger, publish a manual for prosecuting witches, the Malleus Maleficarum, or Hammer of the Witches. It's full of useful tips for hunting down and punishing women who traffic with the devil. Let's see what we can glean from the hammer. A wicked woman is by her nature quicker to waver in her faith, and consequently quicker to abjure the faith, which is the root of witchcraft. And as to her natural will, when she hates someone whom she formerly loved, then she seethes with anger and impatience in her whole soul, just as the tides of the sea are always heaving and boiling. To borrow a word from the heyday of the Ninja Turtles, witches could do some pretty gnarly stuff. But first you had to become one. Step one, you headed off to the woods, where you made a pact with the devil and had sex with him. Or some of his demons. Preferably him. The incubus and the succubus played a role in this, but we'll leave that for another day. Step two. You got a familiar, which was a demon manifested as an animal. This is where the witch's black cat comes from, but it could also be a horse or a goat or a dog or a bird. Frog. Fro you, you vote frog? I don't have one. Oh, but Frogs if you did... Frogs were in Harry Potter, so they could be one. The creature cat... Yes, because Harry Potter is about satanic witches. Yes. I haven't seen it. You heard it here. The creature kept an eye on you on behalf of the devil, your little frog. But it also assisted you to do your various magical feats. The animal fed off of you, but not from your teats, your breasts. Aww. Right. So in a trial, we might strip you naked to look for your witch's mark, which is the place on your body where you feed your familiar. All right, so now you're a witch. Let's get to doing some of them gnarly tricks. Trick number one. Witches can create the illusion that a person is transformed into a beast. She turned me into a newt. To make someone believe that they've turned into a beast or to believe someone else has. What's that wolf doing in here? What's happened to James? The wolf ate James? No, the wolf is James. They turned James into a wolf. James, can you hear me, girl? Trick number two. You can cause someone to become gravely ill with epilepsy or leprosy. The devil's power to inflict harm in this way was evidenced in the book of Job, in which God allowed the devil to torment Job to prove his faith could not be shaken. Doctor, I'd like to learn more about how I can protect myself from Job's disease. Trick number three. You can raise hailstorms and cause lightning to strike both men and beasts. A hailstorm in January? And lightning? Ah! It struck my man! Ah! It struck my beast! Tricks 4 to 14, a lot of your powers relate to sex and fertility. You can prevent couples from conceiving children, disguised as a midwife, witches can cause abortions, or steal children to feed them to the devil. And my personal favorite, you can deprive a man of his virile member. Can confirm across the board. That you have, you have deprived a man of his virile member? You can hide it. I can confirm that. In the town of Radispan, a certain young man who had an intrigue with a girl, wishing to leave her, lost his member. That is to say, some glamour was cast over it so that he could see or touch nothing but his smooth body. In his worry over this, he went to a tavern to drink wine. And after he had sat there for a while, he got into conversation with another woman who was there and told her the cause of his sadness. Explaining everything and demonstrating in his body that it was so, the woman was astute and asked whether he suspected anyone. And when he named such a one, unfolding the whole matter, she said, if persuasion is not enough, you must use some violence. 
to induce her to restore to you your health. So in the evening, the young man watched the way by which the witch was in the habit of going, and finding her, prayed her to restore to him the health of his body. And when she maintained that she was innocent and knew nothing about it, he fell upon her, and winding a towel tightly about her neck, choked her, saying, Unless you give me back my health, you shall die at my hands. Uh, no! Uh, let me go! Let her go! And I will heal you. The young man then relaxed the pressure of the towel, and the witch touched him with her hand between the thighs, saying, <laughs> Now you have what you desire. <laughs> oh! And the young man, as he afterwards said, plainly felt, before he had verified it by looking or touching, that his member had been restored to him by the mere touch of the witch. Yeah. Witches practiced an inverted mass, or Black Sabbath. In the tradition, that was the first concert my dad saw. I was about to make some <laughs> yeah. gnarly, like, metal riff to us. Yeah. Anyway. In a traditional Sabbath, clothed male priests elevated a circular white host in daylight. In the witches' Sabbath, a white host. A white, a white cracker. In the witches' Sabbath, naked females elevated a black square host in the dead of night, accompanied by heavy metal music. Yes! All right. A lot of this stuff was <laughs> imagined by the men who conducted witchcraft trials, but the Black Mass really shows how the witch functioned as a cross between an anxiety dream and a fantasy for the early modern person. Society operated under a strictly controlled Christian male hierarchy. Imagining the witch allowed for a kind of vicarious escape because she was everything that these heavy-handed social controls were not. She was a powerful female, subverting Christian practices and Woo. upsetting the family. Woo. The smallest unit of civilization, according to Freud. Woo. Woo. While these fantasies of witches were mostly imagined, real women were accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake for it. Not as often as some may think. During the Inquisition, which, fun fact, lasted all the way into 1834. Yeah. yeah. No one expects it. Yeah, right. No one expects. You are full of Monty Python jokes today. Most women confessed, recanted, and were actually spared. Uh, that was the goal of the Inquisition, was to get you to confess so you didn't have to go to hell. But confession was uh, key, and it rested on a distorted belief that women practiced these devil-inspired tricks. Whether we burned them or not, this belief was sort of weird and wild stuff. That having been said, devils were very real for many early modern people in the form of demonic possession. The last stop on our tour of ancient medieval and early modern female supernaturalism. Women were, like Eve, more susceptible to the devil's influence, and so more open to possession. In 1634, an entire convent of Ursuline nuns became possessed by the devil, Illudon France. Woo! Woo! <laughs> I want to make some gnarly, like, metal music noises. This now, time. this is... Oh, you just yeah, want metal to run through this thing? Interestingly, <laughs> this was the site of a major divide between Protestants and Catholics, both of whom occupied corners of the same town. Nuns began to experience nighttime visions of demons, which translated into convulsions and speaking in tongues. They claimed to be possessed by a host of demons. Attempts at exorcism caused nuns to shriek and perform sexual motions toward the priests. Ooh. They blasphemed and barked and contorted their bodies. Eventually, they got around to blaming Urban Grandier, the priest who had charge of the convent. They accused him of making a pact with the devil and inviting the demons to possess the nuns. Grandier was tortured but refused to confess and was ultimately burned at the stake. Some debated whether the nuns were actually possessed. 
The archbishop's doctor concluded that the nuns were not victims of true possession. It's possible that the nuns' possession was a case of conspiracy against Grandier. He was a wealthy and attractive man and may have fathered children with some of the better-connected women of Loudon. This made him a target because of all the cuckolding he had been up to. Hanky-panky. And the nuns were a handy tool to persecute him. So a bunch of rich men may have employed these nuns, paid them off to pretend the devil was possessing them. That sounds about right. The question of whether the nuns were or were not truly possessed reveals some interesting facts about demonic possession at the time. Looking back, some scholars try to dismiss possession as a primitive label for insanity, but medieval and early modern people had a category for madness or insanity, which they actually distinguished from possession. The mad were not confined, but wandered from town to town as beggars and were considered mostly harmless. The possessed, on the other hand, were a separate group entirely and were subjected to exorcisms, which could incite a cure if the demons could be properly identified and expelled. This often worked. In fact, the Catholic Church still performs these today. They don't like to talk about it, but they do it. The fact that the archbishop's doctor denied the nuns were involved in a true possession shows that they also had criteria for determining what it meant to be merely faking. It was a psychological phenomenon that was fairly unique to the period. But it was a real thing. I mean, we still have a lot of people that thoroughly believe in possession. Yeah. I think it's a lot more tame now, The the just the whole idea of men not understanding women and what they do and say and thinking that it's bizarre and, yeah, and condemnable. Been to an evangelical church? Oh, yeah. yes. So I, <laughs> I guess I haven't been in the, in the right social Yeah, I mean, I, mean I don't know if I would say it's exclusive to women, but I've definitely watched videos where they have targeted women. Not necessarily young girls, I would say, but just talking about evangelical churches. But you definitely see lust as a big thing. Like lust, and so that's purging them of their lust. Normally, in women, it tends. I mean, that's a thousand-year-old concept, right? Right. Many thousands of years old. These are things we've sort of come up with as psychological categories. Like women no longer faint from hysteria anymore, but they did in the 19th century because we told them that was possible. Mm -hmm. So when you exist in a culture where it's possible to become possessed by the devil, you're more likely to be. People still do become possessed by the devil, but only when they're in context like this evangelical context where you completely buy into the system. Mm -hmm. They're part of the sort of categories that we create for things people can have. It's still a big part of Mm neo-paganism. Possession is huge. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's a slightly different context, but... Always. The second lesson we take away from Loudon is that women, even in a disempowered position as cloistered nuns in a patriarchal society, can utilize the supernatural to bring down a powerful man, or bring down an entire powerful army, as Joan of Arc is going to demonstrate in our next episode. All right, Olivia, let's bring this one on home. I I think we've covered our pagan orgies and witch cults Hmm. thoroughly. I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such time as we get together and do it again. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, Again, my name is Rob, here with Olivia. Hey, bye. Brianna. Bye. And James. Farewell, folks. We'll catch you next time uh, next week for our episode on Jean d'Arc. Woo!